The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls, good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, today my topic is death and dying, and this is from the perspective of two very different authors. Uh, my first guest is Cherie Booker. Her debut memoir is Nine Years Under, Coming of Age in an Inner City Funeral Home. Well, apparently when Cherie's uh, aunt, who she was very close to, uh, died, a 15-year-old Cherie sought solace in an unusual summer job, a very unusual summer job, at the Albert P. Wiley Funeral Home in the heart of Baltimore. So this is what her new memoir is about, Nine Years Under, describes the job that became not just a summer job, but a nine-year career and a lifelong fascination with the business of burials. Welcome to the show, Cherie. Yes, thank you for having me here this morning. Yeah, great to have you here this morning to talk about your book, your new memoir, Nine Years Under, Coming of Age in an Inner City Funeral Home. Very unusual for a young woman from the ages of, what, 15 to 24 yes. to have a job in a funeral home because, um, as you describe it, most people walk away from uh, death, and you ran toward it. Why? Um well, I, I just lost my great great aunt Mary, and um, she was very very dear to me. And so, um, the funeral director that buried her was a close family friend, and he was a member of our church. So when he offered me a job there, I accepted it. I really needed closure, and I wanted to know what had happened to Aunt Mary. Was she in good hands? Did they take care of her? Um, and so, yeah, I thought I would go there for a few weeks, um, find out what happened, and then that would be the end of that. Um, but the complete opposite happened. I, I got there, and um, I was just really mesmerized by everything that I, I saw. And so I wanted to know more. I wanted to learn more. And that curiosity kept me going for, for nine years. So, Sherry, what me- mesmerized you about this well, this whole scenario? People, I mean, and some of it, most people would say, oh, that's horrific. You know, I don't think I could handle it, especially as a teenager. Um, you know, it's even one thing when you're, when you're older, but when you're young, what did you see? What was it that sort of compelled you to want to stay there? Um, well, I really, I fell in love with, with the people who worked there, number one. Um, the staff there was just amazing, and they were so close-knit, and um, they were just great people to work with, and they were so willing to teach me everything um, that I loved it. Uh, when I first started working there, I, I'm like any other person would be. I, I was nervous, um, and one day I went into the chapel. I'm playing the organ. I look over, and there is a body in the casket, and I just went crazy, like, oh, my God. But the woman, her name was Marlo. She was training me. She took me down um, back down into the chapel, and she made me touch the body. And she's like, there's nothing to be afraid of. 
there's nothing this body can do. It can't hurt you. It can't harm you. And so I felt a little more comfortable there realizing that. Um, some of the older people who came in the funeral home, they would always say, you know, you don't have to worry about um, the dead people harming you. It's the living people that you have to worry about. And so that's kind of what I live by, that, you know, um, the bodies that were there, they really couldn't hurt me. Um, and so, so what did you learn from all this? Like what were you obviously, and, and you mentioned training. I'm interested, what kind of training do you get when you go to a funeral? What was your specific job, I guess? Start with that because you're uh, 15 years old. And then what were you trained for? Right. So um, basically when I when I got the job, I was just supposed to answer the, the phone in the door. But I, I did everything but that. So um, I, I learned the inner workings of it. I learned how to deal with insurance policies. I learned how to deal with death certificates. Uh, I learned that you cannot use blue ink on a death certificate um, because it will make it unofficial. Um, so I, I learned a lot of things in the office, but I also had a lot of other responsibilities. Um, sometimes I would drive the hearse on funerals when I was a little bit older, um, 17, 18, you know. I would drive the hearse on funerals. Sometimes I helped to actually dress the bodies or do nails or do hair as well. I remember one day I walked into the basement and my boss was um, – he was trying to curl this old woman's hair, and he's, like, teasing it with his finger. And so I just took the curlers and, and, and just fixed it for him because he was trying to do it on his own. So um, he, he, he really allowed me to do a little bit of everything. Um, I've made funeral arrangements. I've written obituaries for, um, for people. Um, so I did a little bit of everything except embalm. Yeah, and that's a profession, right? You have to go to embalming school for that, yes. don't you? Yeah. You have to go to embalming school, and you have to be licensed. In the state of Maryland, in order to embalm, you have to be a licensed mortician. Right. So you here you are. You're learning all this. I mean, yes, you are in training, I guess, in the office as well as, you know, kind of a hands-on kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So um, what? who did you have coming into the funeral parlor, obviously there are all different kinds of people die for very different reasons. They're different ages. So, you know, it, this is a coming-of-age memoir. I want to describe it as that. So who did you see? Who did you meet? Besides, and I'm sure there was a lot to do with the, I want to talk about the families and or friends or whoever was, you know, accompanying the, or, be, you know, part of the families of the people who died. So I guess the question is, who were the um, the people that you came in contact, the ones who had died, for instance. Yeah, we did about um, we did about three hundred, uh, over three hundred calls a year. So we saw a little bit of everyone. Um, we we buried members of our church, we um, and their family members, but we buried people from that community. Um, so I would see old and young. I would see babies, and I would see um, a ninety nine year old woman or man who would pass away. I we we work with poor families, but we also work with um, wealthy families, or even families who had a uh, a pretty large uh, insurance policy. Um, we work with some people who did not have insurance and had no idea how they were going to pay for a service. Um, so we worked a little bit with um, everyone. In the book, I talk about um, some of the young men that I would see coming through the funeral home. I saw a lot of young victims of homicide, young black men who were victims of homicide, gunshot wound to the head, multiple gunshot wounds, stab victims, um, boys who were caught up um, in, in, in the drug trade, uh, many of them drug dealers, um, some of them gang members who were just caught up in this world and who ended up coming through outdoors um, and leaving out in a casket. 
this is West Baltimore, and so, I mean, it's not surprising, I guess, that, that, that you would find these young men coming in. How did that affect you? I mean, here you are, a young woman, uh, you know, in terms of identifying with these young people, or, yeah. you know, what I was mean, your... It, 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 was, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking when you look and you see, wow, this is someone's son. And a lot of those young men who most of them were under the age of 25, a lot of them were actually fathers. So now you have these children who uh, will, will grow up without their father, um, you know, and then you have their parents and their siblings and their loved ones. It was very disheartening to see such things. And, and you would hear the rumors. You would hear, um, you know, what actually happened to them. People talk, and if you're, if you're like me and you're standing outside of the viewing room, you, you hear these stories, or sometimes the family member would explain, um, you know, what happened, and you're just like, wow. One time we actually had a a, a shootout at the funeral home. We had a young man who was on view, and um, I was upstairs with my coworker, Miss Angela, and all of a sudden we just heard all of this running and screaming, and we're like, what's going on? People were trying to get up the stairs, and there was actually a drive-by. Someone came through, and they tried to, um, they attempted to shoot uh, the young man's brother while he was standing outside. Thank God they missed. Um, but they did shoot through the funeral home. So um, it was very, very real, um, these situations that were going on in, in our community. Um, and not only did they affect those young men, they were affecting us that were working at the funeral home as well. What about the families? Did you have contact, like direct contact with the grieving family members? Did they actually, you know, start talking to you um, and, you know, sharing, sharing their feelings about what happened? Did you ever get close to them? Absolutely. Um, one, uh, I was one of the first people that, you know, they would speak to. So when you call the funeral home in the evenings, you would probably get me. So I'm the first person that they connect with. So it was very important for me that um, to build this relationship with these family members early on, to make them feel safe and um, know that, they, that their family, their loved one, will be in good hands. Um, and so I did build relationships with certain family and family members. Um, nine times out of ten, if you, if you do good service, like those families are going to come back and they're going to reuse you and they're going to recommend um, their friends and other family members to you. Um, so there, there were families that I built relationships with because I'm that person that walks you through. Um, I tell you what clothes you need to bring for your loved one. I tell you um, exactly what you need to do. So, of course, they're going to call me and say, oh, do I still need to bring stockings? Is it okay if I do this? And once you have these conversations, you, you build a relationship. Sherry, I, I, you know, it sounds like you obviously you were building this relationship, but, I'm tr- but funeral is a, the funeral business is a business, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, how do you reconcile the two? You know, you you because you know the sometimes the picture of of the person who is running the funeral pile is kind of like this fake kind of caring thing, and yeah. uh, you know, there's been a lot of spoofs on that, particularly in the, in film and movies and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So, talk to us about that. Um, what I will say is the the particular firm that I work for. One thing Mr. Raleigh was very stern on was that we treated everyone like they were our own loved one. And that's someone who had no money, and that's someone who had the the most money. Um, you treat them like that's your own mother or grandmother or brother or whoever it is. Um, and so it was important for us to care for everyone. I think a lot of people think that when you come to the funeral home, they're going to try to sell you, you know, these expensive caskets. Sell you the caskets. best casket or the most expensive casket. Yeah. That's- yeah. And so and depending on where you go, some people are going to look at it. Um, 
look at you as a sale. You know, I have to sell you this product. Um, but for us, it was a little bit different. Um, I would always ask the, you know, our clients, you know, where do you need to be? Do you want to be on the on the high end? Do you want to be on the low end? Or do you want to be somewhere in the middle? Um, our low end was usually a, a felt-covered kind of cardboard kind of casket. Uh, we call it the K-flare, or the, or the we called it at the funeral home the blue dinghy. Um, that, that was our lower end service, which was about $3,000, $3,500 um, back then. Then we had um, the middle, if you wanted to be in the middle, that was a low-grade um, metal casket. So that was about 4500 to $5,000. And then um, if you wanted to be on the high end, we could sell you a casket that, was, that started anywhere from um, $3,000 all the way up until $20,000. And that $20,000 casket was a, a gold-plated um, casket. And so um, it was up to them where they, they felt that they wanted to be at the end of the day. But knowing that things were itemized as well. So you have to pay for that uh, limousine. You have to pay for that hearse. Um, and those are three hundred dollars each, and um, you know you have to pay extra for the the programs, the funeral program, um, and and those services. So we weren't really trying to sell anyone anything, but knowing that you need to be in a comfortable place where you can afford what you need to to, to get for your loved one. Well, would you re- would you recommend that people then perhaps prepare for this? I mean, I guess I've, they say that they you know, prepare for it, but people don't like to talk about their death or their impending death or somehow we think we're all going to be immortal. But um, so because it's very expensive, even the, the inexpensive caskets. Something just... that, um, that a lot of people do not know. So a lot of people have life insurance. Uh, what happens with that is that um, there is a contestability clause in life insurance. In all life insurance, there's a contestability clause. And basically what happens is you have to have your life insurance for at least two years. So um, the the insurance agent always tells you, you know what, you're covered as soon as you sign this. Um, And, yes, your policy is in effect. But if it's not in effect for two years, then you cannot use that policy. Is that just true in Baltimore or is that true in every state? No, across the board. So what happens is a lot of times, um, let's just say, um, I get. I, today is June fifth, two thousand thirteen. And let's just say I pass away on June third, um, two thousand and fifteen. The insurance company is going to say um, we can contest this policy. And so what they're going to do is they're going to. Um, they want everything. They want all of your medical records. They want just any everything that they can find. And a lot of times they do not pay out on the policy. So funeral homes really don't take uh, a policy um, if it's less than two years old. So if you haven't met that date, then the, the funeral director is probably not going to take that policy because there's a chance that the insurance company uh, is not going to pay out. Well, that is something that I didn't know. And I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, and so and we saw that happen a lot. So I would get someone, and and sometimes we people people do that. So you may be diagnosed with something, you go get the life insurance policy, and and then you don't make it till the end. Um, that's something that that can cause you not to pay out. And and so we would see that a lot. A lot of people who come in, they have a big insurance policy, but it's less than two years old, and we just couldn't accept it. What? That put them back at the bottom. 
you know, so that, well, I guess there's a lot of red tape, or there can be a lot of red tape involved, I guess, in the pro- process of dying, or is, is the same as like, in the process of living, I guess, right? So you really do have to be aware of all this stuff. Let's get back to some of the, Sheree, um, some of the practical stuff when you are uh, preparing someone for the casket or for the funeral. And I was curious because you talked about, um, like, makeup, um, like how to, you know, you have to put on the right kind of makeup, how to, you learned how to do that. Were you able to do that? You know, I do, a, and this kind of maybe sounds strange too, but I do a lot of, uh, or have done in the past, like uh, theater and um, mm-hmm. you know, commercials and stuff. And one of my makeup people said, you know, the mo- I do makeup for funeral homes. That's like a, mm-hmm. a business. So she's a professional, and she and that was probably at least 60 or 70% of her work. So something yeah. I had never really thought about. So, But yeah. uh, you um, also... Yeah, you mentioned this too. Miss mm-hmm. Wally did a, a lot of the um, the cosmetics for um, for the funeral home. You get people who come in, and um, there there are a lot of things that you have to kind of cover up and and, and disguise. So, like what? If, if you have someone who's a victim of, um, let's just say someone has a gunshot wound to to the head or something like that. You're going to have to cover that with mortuary makeup to make sure that that bullet wound is not visible. Um, sometimes people, um, because of their illness, depending on how they die, some people may get darker. Um, certain things. So trying to find that right thing. One thing that Mr. Wally always did was, uh, or what we asked for at the funeral home was to bring in a picture of your loved one um, when when they come in. So that's one of the first things that he needs so that he can make them look um, as close to what you remember them as as possible. Um, one Sheree, is there a specific kind of, is there a specific, you mentioned, you said mortuary makeup. Is, mm-hmm. is it a different kind of makeup? Um, it, there, is, there is a different kind. Um, I think I, the texture is kind of the same. Think of foundation. You know, it's a, there are liquids, there are powders. There are different ones that you use to, to really help um you know, cover someone's face and, and, and try to make them look normal um, after that embalming process. But I was, I was saying that one of the, um, we once had a case of a woman who came in and um, her dad had been sick for a very long time. And Mr. Wally asked for a picture and he made this man look just like the picture. And the woman came in and she's like, what is this? He he doesn't look dead enough. Like he looks like the picture I gave you. That's not the way I remembered him. You know, these last few months during his sickness, and so she was very disappointed um, at the way that he looked because he just did not look dead enough for her. And I think that she was trying to accept him leaving, and so she had to um, have that kind of image of of him and for her to accept it. So what happened? Did you have to, that was it? Yeah, so, so Mr. Was, Wally sent everyone out of the room. He went back and um, he he tried to fix that that, that man and um, make him look the way that she wanted him to. And, and she was pleased at the end. And so some things are just a, a quick, um, you know, moving of the skin. So you can make a body smile if you want, you know. You just kind of purse the lips up, take your fingers and press it up, um, but uh, I've been to funerals where I've seen bodies where the smile is too much of a smile. It, it almost looks... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you want to kind of make it, well, they really shouldn't have done that. So there really is an art to putting the makeup on, as you said, fixing yes. the hair, 
Uh, and what about the clothes? Because they have to be special because you're know, lying in a casket. And is it true when you're in the casket that the bottom part of you doesn't necessarily isn't dressed? Well, we dress while you're on the while you're in the dressing room. You're still on a on a table, so you're on the metal table before you go into the casket. Um, it, it depends on what it is. They sometimes they do have to to snip your suit. Your suit jacket, if it's the male, they'll they'll cut it straight up the back. Sometimes if um, they'll cut your dress straight up the back to kind of um, dress you just from the front. It depends on what you're dealing with um, and the size of the person as well, trying to fit them properly. So there are a few little tricks that they have to make sure that um, you can fit in, in into your clothing. So... It sounds to me like you, I mean, you have, uh, you know, that whole experience of all those nine years. I mean, you were a therapist. It sounds like you had a negotiate, salesperson, yes. confidant, yes. all of those things, and also even a friend to some of these people of, of the uh, the families of the, the people who died. Definitely. Um, you know, when I look at it now, I, I look at it as just, you know, I was able to serve the people of Baltimore and really be there for them in their time of need. And it was rewarding for me. And um, after my Aunt Mary died, a few months later, I found out that my mother was terminally ill as well. And so for me, I knew that one day I would be on the other side again. Um, And so it was very important for me to treat these families with love and respect because if I lost my own mother, I, I would need someone to be there and be that support system for me. And so I just thought of it in, in that in that way, you know, um, that just being there, being helpful, being being this person that they can trust and and, and listen to them. Um, it, it was important for me to to be that person for them. Well, it sounds like you were able to do that, and you did it well. I mean, with all the different kinds of patients that you have. Well, you mentioned gang members, mm-hmm. uh, really so AIDS patients even. We didn't even mention that. Cancer patients, young and old. What would you say was the most difficult? Because you do mention, like, little you little babies. I mean, that must be a really tough, tough. Uh, that, that was very hard for me because um, for most of the time I was able to kind of, you know, tell myself, well, you know, this is God's will and... Um, you know, we're all going to pass away and we're all going to die. And I, I could always kind of see something. Like I could look at the picture and say, okay, this was supposed to happen. This father died because this was supposed to bring these children closer together. Or, But when you have a baby and you look at them and they're so young, you, you just can't rationalize it. Um, and so I, I had no understanding of it. Um why why is a baby so young? And so one of the first things that I did when I was in the basement, um, Mr. Wally asked me to dress a baby. And it was very, that that was difficult for me. That was hard for me to actually dress it. And you dress the baby just like um, like a real baby. I actually put a, a diaper on it, a pamper on it. Um, what did the baby died from? Um, I think it must have died for like um, SIDS, like sudden infant death syndrome. SIDS, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, it was just one of those natural kind of, you know, and I'm just like, wow, just dressing it and, and putting its little clothes on. And, yeah, that, that, that was one thing that, that really got to me. And I would imagine the parents or who, whoever Absolutely. was. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very sad. Very, very sad moment. So how did you keep from becoming depressed? I mean, you know, I, I became very numb, so I, I think I, I shared about when Ms., I, Mr. Wally caught me crying and he told me I couldn't cry in the funeral home anymore. And so he told me to look at the wall when I needed to cry. 
And once he told me I couldn't cry anymore, I stopped crying. And, and not only did I stop crying at work, I stopped crying just in my life in general. So when my boyfriend broke up with me, uh, <laughs> I wasn't emotional. I'm like, okay, it is what it is. And I became this person um, for the next eight, you know, years who just was not emotional. Like, this is my job. This is why I'm here. You know, it's just like any a doctor or a police officer, we just can't take these cases personally because if we do, then we won't get anything done. I had a million reasons to cry while I was at work. I saw some of the saddest things that you can ever imagine in your life. And if I cried every moment, I wouldn't have gotten anything done. And so, no. What I, was I, I, the I, saddest thing? Was dressing this baby who died from SIDS or were there sadder things than that? There were sadder things. Um, just... I, people just dying, homicides, people beaten to death. There was one woman, she was dating this professional boxer. Um, He lost his match, and then in his hotel room, he just beat her like she was his opponent. And it was one of the most horrific things that I saw. He beat her so bad that she had a closed casket. Um, And it was was just so terrible and so sad. Um, I, I will never get on a motorcycle. Those accidents are so... Um, dangerous. I saw a lot of people die on motorcycles and um, in bikes um, who crashed on, on like highways and things like that, um, and died painful deaths. Some of them died instantly, but some of them just died painfully. Um, so I saw a little, a little bit of every everything there. So let's take all of that now and fast forward because now you're not working there. You're an author, a writer. You write poetry. Yes. And, yep. You have a master's degree from Goucher. Yes. So how did all of this, what's the the impact on this whole experience to the woman you are today? Because you have your own daughter, don't you? No, I, I don't have any children. I, I, I teach at the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women. Oh, okay. So I have 350 young ladies who are like my daughters, but right. I don't have my own children. You have 350. Um, that's, that's, that's enough. <laughs> Stop there. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, you, you learn to appreciate life. I, I think now I am so much more conscious of what I eat. I I don't run out across the street. Um, I value my relationships so much more so that I won't have any regrets. I tell people what I believe and how I feel. Um if I like you, I'm going to let you know. If I love you, I'm going to let you know. I, I never want you to wake up the next morning and then you're not here. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I didn't have the opportunity to tell them how I felt about them. So I'm very um, just open and aware and um, just about life and my surroundings and what's going on around me. Um, I'm very cautious and, and protective over the people that I love and, and you know, the things that are important to me. Um, and so I've, I've learned so much. I always say everything I learned about life, I learned through death. And I've learned the value of life. And not only my own life, but the life of the people that I love and care about. You know, and that includes those 350 little girls who live in areas like where I lived in the funeral home who actually experienced death themselves. You'll be surprised how many of my students have lost a father who um, have seen someone shot or hurt or murdered. Um, and so just protecting them as well is very important to me. You have an idea, I mean, of the of what it, the finality of life, and I guess understanding that, I mean, this is what I hear you saying, really yeah. makes you, it gives you a kind of a realistic perspective of, you know, how long we have here and what your choice, making the right, making choices and knowing that you have choices, making the right choices, all of those kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, 
Because I think, Cherie, that many of us walk around with our kind of our heads in the air thinking we're going to live forever and we'll take care of this another day and it's, you know, and we may not have another day. Um, but and, and that could be any of us. You yeah, know? any of us, right? You don't have to be right? old. You don't have to be, um, you don't have to have a terminal illness. Uh, I'll tell you, my, um, and I end the book on that note, my my cousin, my first cousin, we were raised like sisters, her husband, 30 years old, woke up one morning. Um, he asked her to go get him a cup of water while he was in the bathroom. She comes back with a cup of water, and he is on the floor, um, gone, healthy man, just had a physical the week before, um, they were just up talking. We were all there the day before. I can't explain what happened, why he passed away. Healthy man, father, three children, um, God-fearing man, and he was gone just like that. Still haven't been able to explain it to this day. So that can happen to any of us at any time, and um, I think more people have to understand that. Yeah, I, well, by listening to you and reading your book, uh, I think they you do get it. A really um, a very realistic understanding of it because as I said when I opened up this show that death is kind of one of those topics we just as a as, as a as a culture we don't talk about you know we don't talk about how much money we make and we don't talk about death exactly. and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and kind of those are the well, we'll I'm talk hoping about... that we can open the discussion a little bit more about it now just how to deal with it how to cope with our feelings um, knowing those little things about insurance and the contestability clause. You know, my mother has written her own obituary. She's written out everything that she wants to happen, like, line by line, you know, like, okay, this is what I want. I want this person to do this. I want This is how I want my funeral. And um, I think we, we have to be more upfront with it. Do you think more people are doing that? I've actually said to my kids, too, uh, you know, be sure you put my resume in there and I want it accurate, <laughs> <laughs> whatever you put in the paper. Yeah. Oh, right. one of the, yeah, and, and one of the things that I've noticed, um, and I don't know if we're going in the right direction or not, because, Sheree, I've noticed, like, when you read obituaries in the paper, mm-hmm. uh, it, they don't even say the person died. They say they passed on, or they passed here, or they're with God, and they kind mm-hmm. of use all these euphemisms without yeah. being able to say this person died. Yeah. You know what's so funny? I, I was just talking about this. One of the things now with all of this social media and everything, a lot of times now people just post on someone's Facebook page when they die. There used to be a time where, um, you know, if someone passed away, you have to make sure you call that person and you say, okay, are you calm? Are you sitting down? Can I come to you? I have something to tell you. And you would just do it with so much discretion, and you just wanted to make sure when you told someone that someone died that they were just in a good place. Now I find out about people that I know dying on Facebook. And even, you know, we've had a a few Twitter scares as well. Uh, You know, a celebrity is um, killed on Twitter like every week, and sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. Um, And so social media has kind of taken over, um, you know, with with this whole death thing, and and they, they go on there and you see all these rest in peace and everything. And so... There's a part of me that feels like um, the family should be able to share that first and that there should be a certain level of respect. But then I feel like, okay, well, this is a way to kind of get it out there and and let other people know. So, you know, on Facebook you have friends from elementary all the way to college and coworkers. And, and so I don't know if it's the best thing or a good thing. So I'm, I'm just watching this trend um, right now. So. so in other words, you're saying maybe well, the protocol – has changed or the etiquette mm-hmm. or whatever Absolutely. and you're not sure yeah which way it's going 
Mm-hmm. Um, what about when you're talking about Facebook? Is that just with young people, or I mean, or, or do older people use Facebook? Older people same, use Facebook too, in the same way when people mm-hmm. die. Yeah. Yep. And I get it. You know, they, they, that Facebook page becomes kind of a memorial page. But sometimes I, I, I knew someone who, um, it was like someone, their sibling or something, they didn't even have a chance. But they found out on Facebook that that, like, happened. Because, you know, the first thing we do now is uh, we all have these smartphones and things like that. So as soon as we get news, then we're going to go straight to Facebook or Twitter and express our sorrow and feelings and, you know, write these messages. So um, it, it happens like that now. That could be horrific. I mean, to yeah, as you say, like a sibling or siblings are perhaps not. Yeah. Imagine someone who's overseas and they're um, – in Afghanistan or somewhere fighting, um, they're in the military, and their mom hasn't had a chance to talk to them, but they check their Facebook page, and now they see all of these rest in peace, you know, to their loved one, to their sibling, to some, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think people think about that because we're so emotional and we feel bad for the loss, but sometimes that can happen. What about humor? I mean, you talk about there is a dark humor to all of this. There, You know, we can, and, uh, you know, I used to, actually work in a hospital, uh, in a rehab hospital, and I was on the death and dying committee. And, and wow. in order to, we would have this dark humor. I mean, we'd be laughing because otherwise you'd be crying all the time. So Exactly. You took yeah. the words right from my mouth. <laughs> um, I worked with some of the funniest people who ever lived. Miss Angela, a character in the book, Mr. Raleigh, um, they were all hysterical people. Um, and what we did was we, we learned we learned to laugh through our our sorrows. Uh, we had so many funny instances. Um, one time I took a body through the McDonald's drive through and uh, you know, Miss Angela called me and asked me if I could stop there and um get her a big and tasty meal, and I, I, I had just picked up this body from another funeral home. So I'm like, okay, sure, it's right on the way. I'll be there for two seconds. There's no harm. Get to McDonald's. I crash into the uh, the little garter pole um, the guards at. I do $3,000 worth of damage oh my to, the, to the car, and then when I get back, we find out that this woman had no legs. Uh and so after looking at the damage to the car and then looking at the woman, my boss was like, oh, my God, what happened to her legs? Where are her legs? And I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. I think they are they in her bag. Um, but he was just pulling my leg because she was really an amputee. Um, oh. But the damage was just so bad, and I, I felt so guilty and I just, you know, for doing that. So we had a few. It, it's funny now. Well, that, funny it's funny now. Exactly. I mean, that's but, an, I wanted you to bring out an example like that. They're, they're telling me <laughs> that you have to go, and I, yeah, I could continue with some of these stories, but uh, uh, that is a funny story. Let's end on a funny note. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Sheree uh, <laughs> Booker, nine years under, coming of age in an inner city funeral home. Great talking to you today, and you can buy your go online, buy the book online or Amazon bookstores everywhere. Great. Have a good day. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We will be back in a minute. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And uh, as I told you in the beginning, our topic today is death and dying. And it's uh, I've had two guests, two authors, from talking about death and dying from very different perspectives. Uh, Will Schwalbe uh, is my second guest. He is an author, has worked in publishing, uh, most recently as Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of Hyperion Books, Digital Media, as the founder and CEO of Cookster.com and a journalist who's written for the New York Times and the South China Morning Post. Um, His new book is called The End of Your Life Book Club. Uh, It's a memoir of saying goodbye to his beloved mother, Mary Ann Schwalbe, as she was dying of cancer. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Will. Thank you, Catherine. Very nice to be on. Okay, so, you know, as I said kind of in the beginning of the show, I mean, Death and writing about death and talking about it is a kind of a, is a taboo subject um, uh, in our culture. But so let's talk about that because you decided to write a book about your mother uh, or, and you, or when she was dying of cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, so what made you decide to write this particular book? Well, that's such a good way of putting it because it is a taboo subject. And as taboo as death is, um, which is a big taboo, in many ways even more taboo is dying and the idea of writing about dying and talking about dying. Uh, and yet, I mean, it, it may sound like an obvious statement or even a cliche, but of course we're all dying from the moment we're born. We're, we're here with a, a limited amount of time. And so it really occurred to me that you can't talk about living without talking about dying. And so... I really wanted to write about all the things I learned from my mother about how to live, and the way to do that was to write about how she died. Well, how did this come about? I mean, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, what, stage four in 2009? She was diagnosed in 2007 with stage 4B pancreatic cancer, which means it's already spread to other organs, and many people with diagnosis uh, only live uh, three to six months. Um, But mom actually lived for almost two years. And what the book is really about is during this time, she, of course, had doctor's appointments. She had tests. She had chemo. And my brother, sister, father, and I all would go with her to various appointments. I very often went with her to her chemo appointments. And we started doing what we'd done our entire lives, which is when there was nothing else to say, I would say to her, what are you reading? And she would say to me, what are you reading? And we would talk about books. And it was really right away that I realized we'd started a very peculiar little book club, one with, with two members. And so this book is really about the, the books we read and the discussions we had uh, during those last two years of her life and, and what we learned from those books and what I learned from her. 
So you had a book club with two people in it. It was a little too people for, for the book. It's funny. The first time I said to my mother, um, as I was there with her in chemo, I said, uh, you know, if we, if we keep meeting like this and talking about books, it's kind of like a book club. And her reaction was, don't be silly. It couldn't possibly be a book club. And I said, really, Mom, why not? And she said, there's no food. Well, you, I mean, your mother, she obviously she has a sense of humor and, and had a sense of humor when she was going through chemo, which is horrific. But you two must have been very close before this. We were very close, and, and the, the experience really brought us closer. Um, and it, it really gave me a real carpe diem sense because uh, you don't need to wait until someone is, you love is dying to, to try to get closer to them, and books are an amazing way to do that. And, and really the reason I called the book The End of Your Life Book Club is I wanted to get that message out to everybody is really don't wait. Don't wait, yeah. But we all seem to, you know, it's great that you, uh, obviously, that you, I mean, I think writing this book, and for some reason we do wait. We, some, some of us think that we're really not going to die. It's not yes. going to happen to everybody else, but, you know, not me. Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, and the kind of big conversations people think they should have um, after a, a diagnosis of uh, a, a terminal illness are, are actually conversations you, you can have any time. You can say to somebody, I'm really proud of you, or I love you, or uh, you can... And one of the things that really occurred to me, Catherine, that I really want to get across is a lot of people talk about regret after someone they loved has died. And, and the thing they most often regret, they think, is the things they didn't say. But for me, and for so many other people I've talked to, the regrets are the things I didn't ask, that I... I had a limited amount of time to learn everything I could from my mother about her life and her views and her feelings and the way she saw the world. And, and the thing that gives me the pang is, why didn't I ask her about this or why didn't I ask her about that? Not, right, not what, why uh, didn't I say it, this. Okay, Will, but what would, you know, I'm thinking you, had, you did have quite a bit of time with her just going through this process of, you know, talking about the books, and, which obviously bring up topics that, uh, you know, are probably pertinent to both of you. So it seems like you did have time. You were there. It wasn't like you weren't there. So what questions do you wish you'd asked her that you didn't ask? Oh, it's sort of, we have endless things to learn from each other. And even if I'd asked her a million more questions, there would be a million more questions. And I think what you do for a living is so wonderful because you you ask ask people things (laughs) and you learn about them. And I think as we all go about our daily lives, there are so many opportunities to do that. Um, someone has a, a foreign accent. Where are you from? What was it like growing up there? When did you come to the U.S.? Tell me about the, the food of the place you come from. Tell me about what it's like to be an immigrant. We could ask each other endless questions, but we're often so busy with what we want to say that we forget to ask. Well, when you were sitting there, when, when you're with your mother and you are talking about the books, did it in any way serve to distance you because you could talk about the book, but you didn't really have to talk directly or ask those questions that you wished you'd asked? What it did, and I thought this was a huge gift, is it left my mother in control. So on the days when she really wanted to talk about big things, um, her own death, courage, faith, uh, what, what took place afterwards, the books gave us an entry point, uh, a way to steer the conversation there. It introduced, they introduced themes and topics, whether it was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Continental Drift by Russell Banks. But on the, the days and times when she didn't, when she didn't want to 
talk about such serious things. She wanted to talk about the grandchildren or this and that. The books gave us something else to talk about and an avenue to that as well. It, they really left her in control of the conversation. And so she took control. I mean, would, and would she actually say to you, because I know with, with friends that I've had who have, have died, uh, sometimes they, you know, you had to read the cues about what they wanted to say or what they wanted to do, but they wouldn't actually say it. And other people will just say, you know, I can't talk about this. I don't want to. Uh, you know, how was it with your mother? Reading the cues. That, that's exactly, that's the best phrase. And I, I likened it at one point in the book to, being in a car with a driver who changes lanes without signaling, uh-huh. um, that it wasn't that today I want to talk about serious things and tomorrow I don't. It could change in a minute. It could change in a heartbeat. And I think part of the challenge of being with someone who is sick is trying your best to read those cues. And you'll get it wrong a certain amount of the time, but it's about really trying. Well, you're what, and how many siblings do you have? I have a older brother and a younger sister. So there are three of you. Yes. What was it like? What was the reaction of, of your siblings? Because here you are in this, and I'm going to say intimate relationship with your mother, kind of very special. I mean, you're with her during her chemo. Um, was there any sibling rivalry or jealousy or, you know, what's been the reaction to actually when you were with her and also to the book? Well, um, we all, I, I was very careful at the beginning of the book to say that my brother and sister have uh, – Story, their own stories to tell, but those are theirs to tell us and when they choose. And she had every bit as much of a deep and profound and intimate relationship with, with my brother and sister, um, and I just left them to tell their own stories if they ever want to. Uh, I will say that uh, my, my mother was a very accomplished woman. She had been director of admissions at Harvard Radcliffe. She had a, a huge second career as a refugee advocate, but if you asked her, uh, her favorite thing in the world it was being a grandmother, and my brother and sister both have children, and I do not. So uh, when she was actually talking to them, a, a huge amount of time was spent finding out about the grandchildren. Uh, but they've been incredibly supportive of the book. They read it through several drafts. They helped me try to really get things right, and uh, they've been terrific about it. All right. So uh, there, it sounds like it was mostly the, um, the repercussions are, are, are positive. Uh, oh, yes. They, they've been really uh, extremely uh, positive. And my father has been wonderfully supportive of it, too. It's so painful ha- having your mother die. Um, you know, I've, my father died, but my mother is still living. I, I think there's something, I, I'm, I'm not sure, and, and maybe you can talk to me about this, but like when your mother dies, I, I don't know, that's sort of like, you know, Mother Earth. Um, you know, how does that affect you? Yeah, it's very, it's very painful. And my mother was 73 when she was diagnosed and 75 when she died, which is too soon. It, um, but also I, people I know whose mothers died in their mid-90s or late-90s, it's your mother, and, and you're losing your mother, and it's very painful. But as painful as it is, I think what's more painful um, is the forgetting. And I, I'm not sad when I remember my mother and talk about her. When I'm sad is when a couple of days have gone by and I haven't thought about her. And, and that's like losing somebody all over again. And so I think our culture has, has a, a real problem with this. It's considered sort of weird to bring up dead people um, and to say, oh, my mother would have loved this, or, oh, I wish I'd 
my mother had been alive when this book had come out because I would have loved to talk to her about it. And yet there's a lot of us who want to talk much more about the people we loved who are no longer here. And, and I hope if the book does anything, it gives them a space to share their stories with each other about people they loved who are dead. I think, it, the, to me, my experience has been the longer the time passes, then people can talk about the person who died. But it's almost like the moment they die, then no one wants to talk about them. It's too raw, you know, and, and so nobody wants to mention that person's name. I find that always so odd. But And then the longer the time, as the time goes by, then they're able to, to discuss the person who dies. I don't know if that's been your experience. Oh, but. It, it has, and I think they... We we have this kind of mythical thing, too, that everybody talks about closure. And, and some people say to me, oh, you wrote the book. Did that give you closure? And I always say, I didn't want closure. Yeah. What I really wanted was to continue our conversations. And I think that's much more common than not. Yeah. What about the favorite? Is there a favorite book? Is there one that was that you know now you you think about that, that you know that you and your mother discussed or, or maybe favorite books? There's a favorite, clear favorite, hands down, and it was Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. And why was it your uh, favorite? What Crossing to Safety, it's, it's a book about something that very few writers have written about, uh, which is the lifelong friendship of two couples. Um, and my mother and father were married. Um, Mom died just a few months shy of their 50th anniversary. I've been with my wonderful partner, David, for almost 30 years. Friends are incredibly <laughs> important in our lives. Yeah. Uh, and it's a book about the, the full thing. It's about life. It's about friendship. Um, there's a, a wonderful character who's dying of cancer at the end. It's about how her husband will do after she's gone. It's about... It just is one of those rich books where after you've read it, you can't imagine not having read it. So lifelong friendships, that seems to be a pattern in your family. Well, as you say, you and your partner 30 years, your parents 50 years. Yes, uh, almost what, 50. What about your brother and sister? Do they uh, have they're a- both very happily partnered, and uh, it's... Uh, the the uh, and it's friendships too. I mean, I really wanted to highlight that. Also, our our family's always been one where uh, there is no family occasion that doesn't have anywhere from two to ten friends uh, with us at it, and that's been really an important part of the warp and weft of our lives. And uh, our friends are each other's friends, uh, which is wonderful. My my parents. Uh, were dear friends with people who were my schoolmates, and I got to dinner all the time with people who they introduced me to from their childhood. And, and that kind of friendship among generations, I think, can give such richness to our lives. Well, we've been talking about a lot of positive kinds of things, and obviously you're a close family, and, uh, you know, you all share, like, uh, well, you share so much. I mean, besides, I mean, you're together a lot, and, you know, all the generations, but people are going to say, well, what, are there any negatives? I mean, was there any, well, in the book, do you discuss um, things that didn't work out so well in your family? Was that an opportunity to be able to kind of, not put closure to it, to be, but to be able to discuss certain things, knowing that your mother wasn't going to be there for that long, and she knew it, too? We had plenty of things that you know, We were a very normal family, and there are periods where people were furious at each other, and, and people say mean things to each other and uh-huh. people have snits and it's all of that i mean we're we're a very normal family i will say that mom's diagnosis of pancreatic cancer pulled us together to a great extent because we knew that there was a limited amount of time left and everyone really did there were moments of anger and frustration and depression and hurt as you can imagine but 
I wanted to convey the overall theme, which was knowing that mom had really two years tops left, but probably only three to six months. And amazingly, she did get the almost two years. Everyone really did pull together. And, and I see that very, I, I see that a lot. Um, I, when I was sitting with her in chemo, in the waiting room with hundreds of other people and, and their loved ones, I saw a lot of things that inspired me. One of the things is, I think, that, that uh, she was diagnosed with, when she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, wasn't it well before they thought that she, for quite a while, that she had picked up some kind of infectious disease because she traveled, traveled around the world, so it took a while for them to diagnose her? Um, it did. At first they thought she had some weird form of hepatitis because she'd just come back from her refugee advocacy work in Afghanistan. On the other hand, uh, one of the reasons pancreatic cancer is so deadly is it, it's, that's not an unusual story. It often appears to be something else, and is, it's very hard to diagnose and is very frequently diagnosed at this final stage. Yeah, so usually by the time you are diagnosed, you tend to only have a few months. Or Yeah. If it's yeah. caught in time for what they call a Whipple procedure, um, then it, there can be a much more hopeful scenario. But if it's caught at this last stage, it's the most lethal of all cancers. We. Well, I want to ask you about, because now you're CEO of uh, Cookstar.com. Can we just talk about that for a few minutes? <laughs> sure. <I'd love> <laughs> and it's food. Cook, see, yeah, food. I mean, let's, yeah, that makes you feel good. Uh, C-O-O-K-S-T-R.com. Yes, isn't that sort of like Flickr or Friendster or uh-huh, all that? We, yeah. we went with the missing vowel. Yeah. So Cookster is a recipe site that brings together recipes from all the world's chefs and cookbook authors, Nigella Lawson, Mario Batali, Jamie Oliver, Molly Katzen, and we're an indie site, and all the recipes are free, but we we get nice revenue from uh, organizations like AARP that use our recipes, and if you go on Cookster, uh, it generates revenue, and we share it with the chefs and authors. We're the only site that does that, uh, and it has great search, and it's just been a blast being in this new digital world. That's that. Well, that's a very upbeat thing to be or to do. CEO of, of uh, well, Cookster.com. But so, where do you get the recipes from? These very well-known chefs, or from? Um, we license them from cookbook publishers. So these are all the great recipes from the great cookbooks. It's also Julia Child and James Beard. Um, so. If you think of every cookbook in the world, those rights are controlled by publishers, and they haven't been available on the web, and we made deals with the publishers to feature all these great cookbook recipes. Well, and one of the things I think I read, perhaps it was online about cookster.com, you say you like to you know, introduce people to healthy menus and healthy food, but I do have to ask you, didn't you say Peking duck was your favorite food? <laughs> that is not healthy. <laughs> it's not healthy. But, you know, actually... Any real food that you cook and prepare at home, you couldn't possibly make anything as unhealthy as you get in fast food or in the processed line aisles of your supermarket. So really, if you're going to cook at home, it's going to be healthier than anything you're going to buy that's prepared or processed. Uh, that's true. I think even when I go out, and I, perhaps I shouldn't say this, even to the best restaurants in New York City, I never feel quite as 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 good as I do when I'm preparing it myself or my boyfriend is preparing it um, Somehow you're right. You can. Uh, we, you don't put in the. Egg. I don't know what they do in restaurants, but it seems to be yeah, this. Butter. Always, yeah, is that it? Butter. <laughs> it's pretty much butter. It's um, always butter. It's it's usually butter. Um, but it's also uh, just being the awareness of food when you're buying real food when you're cooking. It's you're gonna you're gonna make better things. So what's your? Is there a favorite recipe? Or you can't even say that probably. I mean, you have so many in different oh, categories. So and, and it's also yeah. the, the, the perfect recipe for one moment isn't the perfect for another. And 
I just, I like sort of going, do we have a surprise me button? And that's my favorite thing to do. I, I'm sort of addictive, and I just keep hitting the surprise me button, and it, it generates a new random recipe, and you discover all sorts of things. Are they easy to make, or, or are they complicated? I mean, it's... You can put into the search, you can say, I want less than five ingredients, less than a half hour, easy and cheap, and it'll come up with hundreds, maybe even thousands of recipes. Any, or you can any... say, I want something expensive that takes more than two days and is a splurge, and it'll also find you things. So, in other words, you can be very specific about the kind of food. Oh, that's very in- that's yeah. great. And you can say also, I want something that's crunchy, that's good if I'm sleepy, um, that's from uh, Italy, that uh, is low cholesterol or vegan, and it'll come up with things for you. Also, yeah, we do all the ask- allergies. We do nut-free, gluten-free. Um, we do special diets, halal, kosher, vegan, everything. So you're a one-stop shopper, shopping. That's all you That's have to do. That's what we hope. And we're indie, and we, we give the money back to the people who published and created the recipes. That is Well, you are obviously one creative person, I must say. <laughs> Very creative person. That's amazing. That's great. C-O-O-K-S-T-R.com. And also, of course, I want to mention the, your, um, the book again, The End of Your Life Book Club. That also has a website as well, right? Yes, it's theendofyourlifebookclub.com. Uh-huh. What's your next book? I'm starting to work on something, um, <laughs> and I'm not quite at the stage where I can talk about it yet, but uh, it's, it's a similar uh, theme. It's, it's, it also involves life and death and just thinking about the big things that matter. I'm almost 51 years old, and it just seemed to be a good time to stop and ponder what's really important in life. Well, it seems you do that. You have been, to me... Um, and after talking to you for this half hour, you've been doing that all along. It seems to be in your DNA. Actually, well, sometimes, sometimes with more success than at other times, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it does. I mean, obviously it was in your mother's DNA. It, I mean, it really was. Old. And she, she discovered her whole second life as a refugee advocate at age 55. Uh, quit her job as a uh, teacher and educator and, and went off to be founding director of an organization to help refugees. So I really think we can reinvent ourselves at any time. I agree. It's William, you pronounce the name again for me. Schwalbe. Schwalbe. Will Will Schwalbe, the end of your life cookbook. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Yeah, it was great talking to you. You too. Yeah, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. Most consumers with a comprehensive financial plan feel they have a clear financial direction. The Financial Planning Association offers FPA Planner Search, a database of certified financial planner practitioners who will put your needs and interests first.